Have you tried Music to Code By yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Coming to you from our home studios. Because we like it here. Well, your home, my studio. There you go. Yeah. Well, my, I, I, after the last flood, I basically rebuilt the office to be a studio. Yeah, that's right. So. That's right. Still need a little sound tightening, though. I yeah, uh, the, the last of the dampeners are not in yet. Yeah. So we're still putting stuff on the walls. I built one of them into a light fixture. Speaking of studios, we had a... Uh, couple of birthday parties in March at oh, yeah. Pwop Studios. I've talked about that before. One of them was a guy who uh, took my class when I did training classes at Franklin's Net before the studio was a studio. It was a training room. Right. And he came to that. It must have been 10 years ago, right? But he heard me talking about how uh, we do birthday parties here for, uh, it turns out, like, tween girls love microphones. Sure. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? Microphones and YouTube. That's a party. <laughs> And uh, we've done oh, several, several birthday parties here over the last couple of years. But he brought his granddaughter, and it, it was funny. It was more a party for him than it was for his granddaughter That's funny. and grandson. Yeah, funny stuff. That's All cool. right, let's roll the music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Here's what I got, man. I found this very cool tool that was published on a blog post by Joseph Woodward. He's from the UK in mm -hmm. January of 2017. It's a C-sharp IL viewer for Visual Studio Code using Roslyn. So get this. You, you right-click on your code in Visual Studio Code. Right. And you get IL, a panel of IL on the right. Wow. It just opens up. And here's how it works. He builds the CS file that you're inspecting into an in-memory assembly and then extracts the IL and displays it to the user. Hmm. Isn't that cool? That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. Very cool. I just love that kind of innovation. You know, Rosalind is like magic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. This is yet another of these examples of the Cambrian explosion, right? It's like, now that you can, you have a compiler as a service, what can you do? Right. And uh, you can find that, of course, at 1432.pwop.me, because this is show 1432. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1290, the one we did with Donovan last year, May of 2016, mm -hmm. talking about mobile DevOps and what those pipelines look like. And got a ton of good comments on this show. But uh, let me read this one from Jonathan Gallagher, okay. who says, man, the things I miss by falling three months behind a .NET rocks. Donovan has some really great energy, but I'd almost bet money he's exaggerating a bit when he says that it supports all languages. Consider mm. how effectively mm. you could build Perl applications <laughs> in Visual Studio. No, I'm not going to consider that. That <laughs> yeah, makes me sad. I'm not going to do that. I'm not that guy. <laughs> I don't mean just apps that are consisting of a couple of script files with a few hundred lines of code. Perl only ever has one line of code, dude. It's just <laughs> yes. an endless line of code. <laughs> it's right only. That's <laughs> it. There are a couple of applications where I work now that have hundreds of script files and a stored proc probably with a few hundred thousand lines of code. Okay, I have dealt with stored procedures that big, but then I got the way from there because it made me sad. Isn't Perl just a wrapper around um, a regex exception? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> 
Damn much. But I don't blame him for skipping odd balls like Pearl on Windows. God knows I'd rather port our big Pearl apps to C Sharp uh, than have to figure out how to make them easy to maintain, test, and deploy. And read. <laughs> yeah. Well, the best way to make them easier to maintain, test, deploy, and read is to change them from being Pearl. <laughs> Uh, to be fair, I'm sure that Visual Studio can handle copying the files around, but how do you run Perl tests? What are Perl tests? All right, let's just <laughs> stop this whole Perl thing right here. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, you know, we're going to get some email from, of course from we serious Perl hey, fans. Man, it was great like, in its day, and yeah, it did it. the job, and it did it very well. And I'll tell you right now, bring me a couple of Perl test frameworks, and I will talk about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I could write some some PowerShell that remotes into a computer capable of running Perl, runs the test there, passes back the result. But I expect both my system and my uh, employer security policy will fight me every step of the way. Probably. Hey, Perl is a big old security violation now, isn't it? It's a wrapper around security exception. <laughs> <laughs> While Visual Studio 2015 fought me a bit when I tried to open applications there, Visual Studio Code works very well for editing and managing the projects, mostly because it doesn't try to do more than provide syntax highlighting. Mm. Yeah, that's what Studio Code is good for. Mm. Am I wrong about the quality support for oddballs like Perl? I'd love to have to eat my words since it would hopefully become with a big dose of thank God that turned out to be easier than expected. No, John, I don't think you're wrong. I think those odd ducks are challenging to manage, and I think you've come up with a good way to do it with Visual Studio Code and some external tools. So you do get the syntax highlighting, but you have to manage it separately. But I, I can't imagine that there are many people inside of Microsoft worrying about the Perl implementation for Visual Studio. Mm. That's just me. I'm only guessing, but I'm a good guesser. Mm. John, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. We publish every show to Facebook and Google Plus. And if you comment there and read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And uh, send us a tweet. We do not convert them to Pearl. But we might convert them to Regex. Nope. <laughs> No pearl was harmed in the making of this episode of .NET <laughs> But it was mocked mercilessly. It was mocked a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's bring Donovan on for real here. Donovan Brown is a principal program manager for DevOps in the developer division at Microsoft, focusing on developer tools, including Visual Studio Team Services and Team Foundation Server. Before joining the firm, Donovan spent seven years as a process consultant and a certified scrum master. Donovan has traveled the globe helping companies in the U.S., Canada, India, Germany, and the U.K. develop solutions using agile practices in industries including communications, healthcare, energy, and financial services. Donovan is an avid programmer, often finding ways to integrate software into his other hobbies and activities. Welcome back, Donovan. Hi, thank you so much for having me again. You bet. I want to go back real quick to the guy who said I, he thought I was exaggerating. Um, I, I take it as a personal challenge to make sure that team services and TFS, I want to be very specific. When I said any language, any platform, I was not talking about the IDE. I was right. talking about tooling we have for continuous integration, versioning, and continuous deployment. And I still stand by the fact that you show me a language, and I'll show you a way that we can version it, build it, and deploy it using team services and TFS. There you go. That's very fair, right? It's easy to, to misconstrue team services versus visual studio itself yep yeah because we throw the word visual studio around so much i'm even confused sometimes if our customers are talking about the ide or are they talking about code or are they talking about our ci system it's so i love the word visual studio because it stands for developer but sometimes it's been used so often it can be confusing to people so i'm I just confused to right now <laughs> exactly right there's so many of them so a lot of us just go by abbreviations you'll hear us call it vsts or tfs and then when we say visual studio we're usually talking about just the ide yeah. right but in, in the case of team services, you don't have to use Visual Studio to use team services. Exactly. And that's why I can say any language, any platform. You can actually use almost any IDE you can imagine, right? And we also support Git as a version control, which means you don't have to use any IDE at all. Uh, right. You can literally just go to the command line, do a Git push to a repo stored in team services, and we will start downloading it, compiling it, testing it, packaging it, and deploying it for you, regardless of what language it's written in or what IDE you used or if you used an IDE at all. Nice. Yeah. And so, yeah, your Perl will be fine. Just Absolutely. Code it with something else. Unless you have one of those visual languages that can't compile with a command line switch. 
And I don't no, think yeah, I've ever seen any rare, rare, luckily, right? Those are harder and harder to find these days. Most yeah. most IDEs are literally just calling down to a command line anyway. They're just abstracting that away from you. And what we are able to do is just call those command lines again for you, uh, passing in the correct parameters during your build and release. Yeah. Weirder things have happened, but I Absolutely. haven't seen one in a long time. You're right. True enough. Yeah. Well, you've been busy, my friend. I guess Studio 2017 being out, has your life gotten easier or harder? Uh, no, since the last time I spoke to you, I've a uh, couple things have changed. I moved from Seattle back down to Houston. So my address is now Texas, but I'm never here because right. my life has gotten even more crazy than it was the last time we spoke. I um, was really lucky and fortunate enough to do, I did a month long tour of seven countries in Europe wow. uh, across November, December. Yeah, it was, it was out of control. It was so popular that I'm going back and I'll be there from May to July, uh, where we're hitting, I think, seven or eight more countries of uh, meetups and conferences and customer visits. It's just unbelievable. So um, it's gotten even more crazy than the last time you and I spoke. It's like every time I do a keynote, it my schedule books out. I'm booking out until February of 2018 right now. That's wow. awesome. Now, aren't you getting married? How is your wife going to react to two months on the road? <laughs> Awesome, right? See, actually, she's part of the team, right? So oh. Anisha does all the setting up. Uh, Chelsea, my fiance, does all of the booking of travel, and she comes with me, right? So that's how I'm able to do a month-long tour in Europe is she gets to go to Europe with me. It's not as if I, I leave her home. And I couldn't do these tours without her support. Right. It was a fun – we were in um, – I think we were in London, and then Scott – uh, Guthrie got a hold of me. He's like, hey, Donovan, I hear you're going to be in Germany the same time I'm going to be there. Would you like to be a part of my keynote? Well, my schedule was originally planning for me to get there the day after his keynote, not the day before his keynote. Right. And somehow Chelsea figured out how to get us on a train, something, I think it's called the ice train or something like that. And she oh, yeah. literally rushed me off stage, got me into a taxi. We got under this train and we were able to get into Dermstadt so that I could be a part of Scott's keynote. And I would not have had time to do what I was there to do and then also rearrange my schedule to be there. So the reason it works is only because she comes with me. You're also doing a joint keynote with, with Guthrie at Dev Intersection in Orlando. I am. Yeah. Every time we find out our paths cross, we end up doing a keynote together. So yeah, he and I are both going to be at Dev Intersection. And then we both fly to Europe to start our tours over there. We are going to do Tekarama <laughs> together. And then we, I think we part ways after Tekarama. And I go one way and he goes another, but we both stay in Europe for quite some time. That's awesome. Yeah, very yeah, cool. It's, it's, it's been fantastic. I just finished doing DevOps Summit in Brazil. Uh, I guess what's today? Today's Monday. So I did that Friday and Saturday. And then I'm doing a tour of Latin America again in October and then one of Asia in um, 2018. The last DevOps demo I saw you do is a build. And uh, I can't imagine it being any more awesome than that. What's happened since then? It was it was nuts, right? So the the demo I do require I have no slides, there's no setup. It's just Donovan gets up there and for an hour I build four DevOps pipelines from scratch. So when I get on stage, I have nothing. And by the time I get off stage, you've seen me build four different pipelines using four different channels into team services, using four different languages. <laughs> Three of them, I go to app service and one of them goes to Docker and I do it in an hour. Wait, so, the wow. Perl one goes to Docker, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I pushed Java to Docker on this one, but I, I, I could. Now, you got me curious, right? You literally guys have you guys been thinking, hmm, I wonder if I could do that. And what yeah. would it take? Challenge accepted. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a take a pass on that one and stick to what I the more the more common languages for web type of development. But I did ASP.NET full framework, ASP.NET Core, Java, and Node.js. Nice. Uh, the Java one I sent to Docker. Every and I built. So if you're not familiar with what we've been doing, we've always yeah. had team services back there. But what we're trying to do is stop having you have to become an expert in our UI, which we keep changing to try to improve it, which can sometimes be a barrier to entry. People just want to, like you say, stay in the ID that they like and be able to build an entire pipeline. And that's what I show them is that you can go inside Visual Studio now. You can install a new extension that we have called the Continuous Delivery Extension. And right underneath Publish, which is what you normally do when you right-click a project, you'll now see a new option for Continuous Delivery. When you click on that, it'll then wire up your Azure account to your Team Services account, create a CI build for you, and a continuous deployment for you all the way into Azure just from a right-click. It's huh. an incredible. And so that was the first path that I took them down was let's stay inside Visual Studio. Let's do a right-click and let me show you how we can build a pipeline. Then what I did is I took them back inside Team Services. We created another project. We have this cool feature to where you can actually import Git repositories from an existing Git repo into Team Services, which can be really 
beneficial to your financial bottom line because a lot of our competitors charge you for private repositories. We don't ever charge you for private repositories and you don't even have to clone it, add a remote and then republish it. You can literally just give us the URL and say, import this one for me. We'll go grab all of the code, all of the history and put it inside of a free private repo for you like in a couple of seconds. It's amazing. So I did that on stage to prove that I could pull code from, I think I chose GitHub for this example, pulled it down, put it inside team services. And then I went over into the Azure portal and said, okay, now that I have my code inside of this team project, I'm going to leave team services. Mm. I'm going to play the role of an IT pro, someone who deals with the infrastructure all day long, manages our resources, and lives inside the portal. And this person wants to champion DevOps from their perspective. They don't want to have to learn the IDE. They don't want to have to learn team services. Right. But they know that CI and CD are a good thing. So how can they then kind of be the champions for change and the champions for DevOps from an operations perspective using a tool that they like? Well, funny enough, if you go to a web app inside of Azure, there's also a new option there called continuous delivery. And if you click on it, there's a series of blades that you'll be shown in Azure that will walk you through configuring a complete CI and CD no. system services for it. Yes, it's amazing. So it'll even run load tests for you. It'll use deployment slots for you. You just answer a few questions, tell it where your team services are, sit back and relax. It creates a CI build for you. Wow. It creates a continuous delivery pipeline for you. It runs load test for you. And then it does deployment slots so that you can have a zero downtime deployment into production, all from just clicking on a, a couple of items in a, uh, a blade inside of Azure. Wow. Nice. Yeah, it's and more, we weren't done yet, right? So if you are a guy like me who's grown up inside team services, you can go directly to team services, create a team project. I imported some more code and I was able to use all of the wizards that we're now producing inside of the product itself. So if I want to create a new build, for example, and I was doing a Java code, it said, okay, here are templates that we know how to build using Gradle. We know how to build using Ant and we know how to build using Maven. Which of these do you want to use? Which are the three most popular build engines for for Java. So I yeah. said, hey, I want to do Maven. So this is great. So then it created a build definition for me with a Maven task in there that was already ready to build my code and even run all my JUnit tests for me. So then what I did hmm. is I checked this little box and said, How do, why don't you go ahead and calculate code coverage for me? And then when I scrolled down the task, it says, oh, by the way, I know what SonarCube is. Would you like me to go ahead and calculate your technical debt for you and send that to SonarCube? I'm like, yeah, of course I do. So you check another <laughs> box. And then it goes and it wires up SonarCube for you as well. So with this one task, I built a WAR file. I ran my JUnit test. I calculated my code coverage and I sent all those statistics to SonarCube for me. It was just unbelievable. And it comes out of the box ready to go. Wow. There's nothing to install. There is no agents to set up. All that stuff is ready for you in the cloud instantly. Who builds SonarCube? SonarSource. So SonarCube is by a company called SonarSource. Uh, what I did have already is I had a Sonar server already up and running, right? So right. in Azure, I spun up an IaaS machine, I installed SonarCube there, and then you basically have the URL to your SonarCube. And I needed to provide that to Team Services so that it said, hey, okay, I know where your SonarCube is now. What I'm going to do now is when I'm done calculating your code churn, your code coverage, your test failures, and all the different smells that I see in your code, I'm then going to mm. ship that over to your server for you. And in the summary of the build is a deep link to your project in SonarCube. Hmm. So it's just this beautiful dashboard of here's your the WAR file code that I built for right. you. Here's your test results. Here's your code coverage. And oh, by the way, click on this link and I'll take you to SonarCube so right. you can see your technical debt. If you really nice. want to dive into it, there it is. Yeah, exactly. And then what I was able to do with just adding a couple more tasks, uh, I, I use Bower. So we have a Bower extension for team services, which I actually had installed. So I was able to just drag and drop a Bower task to my build definition. And then I wanted to build an image and also pack, publish that image to a registry. So I added two Docker tasks. And here you have four tasks, one to run Bower, one to run Maven, one to build a Docker image, and then one to publish it to a registry. We can publish it to Docker Hub, or what I did on stage is I deployed it to Azure Container Registry, which is our own private Docker registry for you in Azure. What's really nice about that is when you store your images in Azure, and you're going to run it against a ISVM in Azure or Azure Container Service, which is also in Azure, the network latency between the image and where it's going to be run is almost zero, right? It, it downloads and runs so quickly. 
I could not explain what was happening before it was deployed already. It took about three <laughs> seconds. It was amazing. So I was like, I'm going to show you why Docker is so cool right now. And I clicked on go. I started a sentence. And before I knew it, everything was green. And the new app was already deployed. I'm like, that is why Docker is cool. Because I can deploy an entirely new application, no matter how big it is, in literally seconds. It was just unbelievable. Wow. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard web and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. So that was, I think that was, I think that was three, three, yeah, that was three pipelines. And then I had one more to go. And this one was a lot of fun because I was, everything had been going against Visual Studio Team Services. And a lot of people start to forget that we also have Team Foundation Server, uh, which is like the twin brother of Team Services, Mm. but it's three months older or three months younger, right? So Everything that we do in Team Services gets updated every three weeks. You're on the current bits. We do it all for you. I always describe it as everything that you love about Team Foundation Server with none of the maintenance. We back it up for you. We restore it for you. We upgrade it for you. It's a beautiful world. But not everyone is ready for the cloud. Uh, they don't feel comfortable there. They're the military. They're financial institutions. We get a whole laundry list of excuses on why the cloud is is too dangerous for one industry or the another. So what we also provide is Team Foundation Server which is everything that you get from Team Services, but you now get to install it locally in your environment. Right. Of course, you now also have all of the stuff I just mentioned. You have to back it up and restore it and upgrade it. But you now have that security, that, that, that sense of I now control everything and no one can get in here. So how do we then do all this cool stuff that Donovan just showed us against that environment? And I took it even a step further is I did it all from the command line. My entire demo inside Team Foundation Server built a Node.js application, a pipeline with the dev, QA, and prod environment using infrastructure's code into Azure using ARM templates, and it did it all from PowerShell. I never left a PowerShell command prompt. Hmm. The reason why is I used a tool called Yo Team, which is a Yeoman generator that I wrote for uh, Yeoman. So Yeoman is an open source product. You can go to GitHub and look at it right now or just go to yeoman.io, I believe it is. And you'll see what Yeoman is. You can type things like Yo ASP and it'll create an ASP.NET app or Yo Express and it'll create a Node Express app for you. And all it does is it gives you the source code. And it's like this beautiful boilerplate getting started hello world type of application. And when I started learning more and more about Yeoman, I'm thinking, why are they only giving me the app? Uh, why aren't they building me the pipeline? I mean, I want everything when I type Yo something. So what I did is I wrote this tool called Yo Team, which is my own custom generator that not only gives you the code, but we'll communicate with team services in Azure for you and actually build your CI, your CD connected to Azure and even create the project if the project doesn't already exist for you in team services. You type your team, you answer about four or five questions and you sit back and relax and everything gets built for you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I did this. It works against Team Foundation Server and Team Services. So what I did is I said, for all you guys still using TFS, don't worry, we haven't forgot about you. I jumped into a VM that only has PowerShell running. And then I even showed off something else we've been playing with at Microsoft, which is the Team PowerShell module. So I typed Git project and it said showed nothing. I was like, oh, did I forget to guys tell you guys I can do all the stuff that I want to do in Team Services directly from a power um, from PowerShell. So I showed them that I was connected to a local TFS. I then started showing them all the the commands inside of that module. And there's probably a good 20 or 30 different commands in there from creating a project, creating a build, uh, creating a release, approving your release uh, approvals. I mean, everything you can imagine from a DevOps perspective is actually already in this PowerShell module. So I was able to show them that there were no projects. I then ran Yo Team, went back and showed them that there was a project now. 
I went and showed him that there was a build running by simply typing get build and it said, hey, there's a build running and it's in progress. We waited for the build to complete. And then I went and I showed him that there was a release now and it said the release is in progress. I was able to show them from PowerShell that the release actually has three different environments, dev, QA, and prod, and dev was uh, was um, running. When dev was over, it said, you have an pending approval now. I was able to get the approval and approve it all from PowerShell. And you did this on stage in what, an hour? Yeah, it, th- that was the fourth of four uh, pipelines that I built in an hour. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just as amazing hearing you talk through the demo now. And, and it is on video, and we will link to it, right? Yeah, I, I think they did record it in Brazil, uh, or they just live streamed it. I'm not sure. The very first time I did this demo, I did it at VS Live as the keynote, mm. and they didn't record it. And I wow. thought that was hilarious. I'm like, this is awesome. Now, now, I said, if you wanted to see it, you had to be here. So I went to ask the experts the next day. People were kicking themselves because like every table, people are talking about the keynote, and some people slept in, and they're like, what did I miss? That's not even yeah. recorded. I'm like, you got to be there. So at Brazil, I believe they did live stream it, but I don't know if they actually recorded it. All right. Well, we'll see if we can dig that up. But I mean, that was amazing then. I I can't imagine what you guys have been doing since then. Yeah. I mean, and we just keep trying to figure out ways that we can reduce the friction in getting our customers to build a DevOps pipeline. I think Gene Kim and actually Richard, you're the one that told me this is that he used to say it's just for unicorns, but it's for horses too. And I think it's this type of tooling (laughs) that brings it to the masses, right? It's like, you don't have to be some bleeding edge, born in the cloud type of organization to be able to implement DevOps for the applications that you write today. And it's this tooling that we continue to, to rev on and we continue to improve that's bringing it to everyone. I'm, I'm keynoting the first ever Azure Saturday in Europe, and I'm going to do the same demo there. And cool. I believe for certain it's going to be recorded there. Uh, and that'll probably be the one you're going to want to watch because I tweak it every single time I do it. It's like, okay, that was cool. Let me see if I can add a fifth pipeline somehow within an hour. Um, so by then, it, w- it should be bonkers by the time I do it uh, at Azure Saturday in, in Germany. Whew. <laughs> that's my life on a daily basis is figuring out how can i create another demo that is just going to leave people speechless because when i it was hilarious i got off stage and this one woman looked at me and she's just like that was amazing and i was like oh thank you and i thought she was going to say something else but she just repeated that one sentence like four times in a row like that was amazing and i was like i appreciate that great she says i don't understand how you did that so fast that was amazing right? i was like that's that's the like, that's the effect i wanted the answer should be, you can do that when you're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually said to them, and it was the last thing I said is like, you just saw me build four pipelines from scratch in an hour. I said, do not go back to work and think you can't do one of these tomorrow. Like, right. go do this. I, we're, I, if I can make it easier, just follow me on Twitter at Donovan Brown and tell me how I can make this easier. And I will show you that in as quickly as I can code it myself, because I, I think... I've said this before. I want DevOps to be something we used to talk about, not something that's that's important to us anymore. I, I remember when continuous integration used to be bleeding edge. I mean, I could go blow people's mind by saying every time you check in code, I'm going to build it. Yeah. And now to us, it's like if you don't have that already, wh- where have you been? I mean, it, CI is an afterthought. It's something that we just expect to be there. Right. And I want DevOps to go that same route. At what point does it just become development? This is yeah, how you make software. It just becomes part of what we do. Yeah, these are exactly. just tools and processes we use to automate things that we used to do by hand. It took a long yeah. time. Exactly. That's where I want DevOps to go. And I think the tooling that we're building at Microsoft through the Azure portal, through the extension for Team uh, for Visual Studio, through tools like Yo Team and the PowerShell module, and what we're doing in VSTS from templates, I think we're getting to that point to where we're making it accessible to everyone. It's It's not, again, it's not just for the unicorns anymore. Can we talk a little bit about the pieces that go into a pipeline? Like sure. For those four examples, there's got to be some common bits there. I mean, obviously, the build process, testing, what am I missing? What, what, are, all, what are all the bits that go into a pipeline? That's a good question. And I actually, it's interesting because when I, when I build the pipelines using all four mechanisms, the pipelines are all slightly different, which, right. is, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I, take, I make it a point to point out things that I like and I don't like about each one of the pipelines. There's pluses and minuses to each one of them that you need to consider. And I actually wrote up a really long document for, internally for Microsoft saying, guys, when I do this demo, I end up with four different pipelines. Let's let's justify why we do that and if that's mm-hmm. really what we want. Or should we start to consolidate on what we believe is the best practices um, for everyone to build a pipeline? Like there is a right optimal pipeline out there. I, I, I believe that there's certain like as you pointed out, there's certain things that you're going to want in every pipeline that you yeah. have. Unit testing is one of them, right? Having a CI build is great. 
but if it's not running any unit test, it could be doing so much more for you than just compiling the code. Right. All you know if you don't have unit tests is that it compiles. It doesn't mean that it does anything that it was designed to do. Mm-hmm. So let's start adding some unit tests in there. And one of the things I like to monitor with unit tests is code coverage. And now people get concerned when I start talking about code coverage because they think I'm going to use that number to beat them up or what if my code coverage is only 1% or 2%. And I tell them, don't worry about the number. Let's worry about the movement of the number. Because right. if it's only 2%, that's fine as long as it never drops to 1.9%. I want you to stay at least at where you are, which means that all new code that you write, you're also writing unit tests for. Uh, and that makes sure that we're building that muscle, we're building that that safety net that's going to protect us from regressions that might occur if we fix one piece of code that's not tested somewhere else. So mm-hmm. I tell everybody, don't beat yourself up if you have low code coverage. Just start moving that needle with every check-in that you possibly can. So unit testing is something I, I encourage everyone to do in every pipeline that they build. Do you go further down the testing path? Do you care about regression or load testing or any of those other mechanisms? I do, but those don't happen during your build. Right. Right. So in your build, you're generally going to download your code. You're going to compile it and you're going to run unit tests. Unit tests can be executed without the application needing to be deployed, which means you're not connecting to a database. You're not connecting to the backend web services. You're literally testing code that has been isolated using a mocking framework like fakes or MOQ or a rhino mocks or something to that effect that says, I'm testing this unit of code that I know has not been deployed yet. So I'm going to fake out the database. I'm going to fake out the web services, but I can run these as part of my build and get some level of confidence that the signatures, the contracts, and what I expect from this unit of code will behave appropriately. And then after that, you package it up. So you'll create a WAR file or maybe a zip file, a web deploy or a NuGet package, something that you can then use in your release. Now, when you go to release your code, that's when we can start running load test, performance test, UI functional automated testing, because then we would have deployed the necessary database backend, the backend web services that it relies upon. And I can actually stand up the application, be it on a mobile phone using Xamarin Test Cloud or maybe in a web browser using Selenium or Coded UI test. And I can actually automate the using of the application. And at yeah. that point, I know that the units, when put together, actually still function the way that I want them to function. Right. I would probably do that in a dev environment. And then I would move it to QA, which would hopefully start to closely resemble what's going to be in production or my staging environment. The sizes of the resources are very similar. Uh, I'm using load balancers. I, I pretty much have as close of a replica as production as I can. And then that is where I would start to run things like load test and performance test to see, did our changes improve or degrade our performance of our application? And should everything be green, then we would start moving it into staging and potentially production. The other type of testing you could have done in your build, uh, which we're starting to do more and more of, is security scanning. For example, using things like White Source or Black Duck to go and read the dependencies that you have on your code. For example, what packages are you using? What versions are you using? Do the versions that you're using have known vulnerabilities that you need to upgrade against? Are you using code that has a GPL license? That means that if for you to use this code means you have to open source or your code as well, which most of us don't want to do. Yeah. So uh, it's really neat to be able to do all that stuff up front or what we call shift left. We don't want to we don't want to figure this out in production. We want to figure this out as early in the pipeline as we can shift all that quality, shift all that testing and shift all that validation as close to the check in as we possibly can. So that when we deploy it out into production, we're deploying with confidence. I mean, in your perfect world. You add in a new library, you write the first bits of code, and then you check in. Black Doug picks it off and goes, you know, this is an open source library with a with a copy left policy attached to it. So right. you, before you're deeply committed to it, you're like, oh, well, maybe we won't want to use this. It's an exactly. alternative. Exactly. That's exactly what we want. Because once you ship it into production, you're probably under some litigation. And you've, some already, you've already so. broken the rules. Like that point, exactly. you're in violation of the license. Exactly, exactly. I'm also afraid of, you know, I've and I've seen folks do this. It's not until you're doing a we're about to deploy that then the InfoSec guy gets involved and goes, hey, this framework is GPL. And now we got to go re-architect everything or yeah, redesign your, your, around your it. weeks exactly. of work in. Exactly. Exactly. And another thing that I like about doing unit test early and making sure you do automated testing in your pipeline is that. We're not trying to bolt on quality. We're actually engineering quality into the product. Right. Yep. And a lot lot of us historically just sling code. We get to a code freeze. We throw it over the wall to a QA team. And then all this technical debt comes back in the form of bugs. And we try to bolt on uh, quality. But if you were writing unit tests, then you would have been engineering the quality into the product. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, one of the, the other things I like to see in pipelines that I think are from the more mature are things like infrastructure and configuration as code. Uh, those aren't those aren't best practices that I go in like leading with all the time because it can take a, a drastic mind shift of your your entire organization to be able to adopt those. But I believe that somewhere you should be striving to get to to where your infrastructure and your configuration has been codified in some artifact that's in version control because historically. If you need to change a configuration of a server, some poor person is going onto that server and clicking through a wizard or running some bash script to reconfigure your environment. And unfortunately, they're usually the only person that knows how to do that. Mm -hmm. So that information lives and dies with that individual. And if they go on vacation, we now can't scale out our infrastructure because no one else knows what buttons to click and how to configure that fifth server that we want to add to the pool. But by codifying that and actually making it something that's an artifact inside of version control, standing up another instance is just as easy as running another build or running another release and having your cloud actually spin up those new in, uh, resources configured appropriately to host the application in which you want to run it upon. So yeah. infrastructure as code and configuration as code are other DevOps best practices that I like to see coming into uh, DevOps pipeline, but I don't normally see those on day one. Mm. And then penetration test, right, where once the application has been stood up, you actually go and try to see if there's vulnerabilities, SQL attacks that you can run, DOS attacks that you can run, uh, um, uh, DOS attacks, excuse me, that you can run against your app and see how it's going to withstand those type of attacks as well. Yeah. Well, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, man. It's time to use my Perl code generator to create swears <laughs> for cartoon characters. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a d experience subscription from developer express to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club become a ui superhero with dev express ui controls and libraries and deliver elegant.net solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next generation touch enabled solutions for tomorrow whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Juan Campa. Oh, congratulations, Juan. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Absolutely. And Juan just won the D experience subscription from Developer Express. That's a big pile of awesome from them just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. And we'd like to ask our guests, of course, Donovan, uh, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? That's a good question. I think my last answer is still my same answer. I'd probably get a HoloLens. I still don't have one of those yet. Oh, wow. And I'd probably still uh, I'd probably have to go out there and get a, a HoloLens right now, or I'd get a new 3D printer. I'll sell you my HoloLens for five grand. Number one, I wouldn't sell it. Number two, that's two thousand dollars more than that's worth. So yeah, exactly. But I might also buy another three D printer. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with my current one. And which one I do might, you have? I have a Type A machine. So it has the. I loved it because it has the twelve. Wait a minute, Type A. So it's always on. Nice. <laughs> very aggressive it's very in your face when it comes to printing well but you know i loved it because it has one cubic foot print capacity which was which is what i was after yeah which is huge yeah and it's an ex a plastic extrusion style yep yep uh i, I what well, the coolest thing i've ever printed on it i was uh i'm i was out working on my on my car and i take off the door panel and the speaker frame for the speaker was completely destroyed. So the speaker is just hanging against the back of the door panel. I was able to take some measurements, ran upstairs, literally printed a new mounting bracket for my speakers and was able to put it back in my car just by printing it off my printer. It was freaking awesome. Now, was it sturdy enough? Because my, oh my experience God, yeah. with yeah. the material in these 3D printers is brittle. No, it, it all depends on what type of material you're using and also what settings that you set on how strong do you want it to be, mm. how much infill you want it to be. But I have not had a single bit of trouble out of that uh, that enclosure that I built for my speaker. Wow. It was awesome. That's cool. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can you scan an existing one and turn that into something 3D? So you're really talking about a Star Trek replicator here? 
You you can. There's actually 3D scanners out there. I don't have one. And you can also build your own f- with an old Kinect. So if you have a Kinect <laughs> on your Xbox, there's lots of uh, DIY projects on how to build a 3D scanner that you can then take the output and put it into uh, your software to be able to print it. And I think, I forget who the other one, Replicator or something, they have a scanner that you can just go look, look for 3D scanner. They're out so there. So wait, we can make a 3D scanner with a Kinect and an old turntable. <laughs> pretty much pretty much <laughs> exactly and then print whatever it is that you just scanned on your 3d printer channel yeah, exactly. my macgyver here that's funny <laughs> yeah yeah maybe that's what you need dude is in, and instead of another printer get a 3d scanner so you can take yeah, that's a good point and yeah i should probably do that too, cause there's, yeah because there's getting the measurements just right when you're trying to even duplicate something can sometimes be a challenge luckily yeah. for me the speaker grill was easy i've also created like brackets and my my modem for my broadband, it used to be on my desk, but then I actually had a, created my own mount that now hangs it off the back of my desk, right? So it's not taking up any of my surface area. It's just like clever little things. And last thing I printed was a toilet bowl, like a, I'm not a toilet bowl, but a toilet paper dispenser. The one in my house broke. I was too lazy to go out and buy another one. I literally just printed it. <laughs> that is one expensive toilet paper dispenser exactly. right there. Exactly. Exactly. only cost me $3,000, but I was able to print a new toilet bowl thing. There you awesome. go. Yeah, you know, and what's weird is that if you have like a tremor, like your hand is shaking, yeah, your your 3D project, if you don't scan it right, might come out bumpy. That's <laughs> true. Hey, what's with this thing sticking out? Oh, yeah, sorry. I, I tripped. Yeah. So diving back onto the pipeline here, I, I mean, sure. I do like this idea of sort of stage testing. And I'm, and I'm big on having built a lot of websites, getting the test reports back to the developer before they have time to start on something else. Those are surfaced through our build summary and our release summary. So mm-hmm. after their build or the release is done, there's this great page that is like the dashboard of what we did in your build, which will have not only your test results, but also what bugs you were working on, what code you actually changed. And the developer can get notifications of, hey, the build just finished, and then quickly be able to see that. Or, hey, the the release just finished. Here's a link that we can deep link into the summary. And then we also have dashboard capability inside of Team Services, where you can surface the results of the last build, the results of your last release. So they could quickly look up and say, oh, my God, why is that red? That's bad. Let me go in and see why my build failed, even if they don't have mm. notifications enabled. And the the incentive I have there is I'm very much aware that the longer you go from when you checked in that code to when you get that feedback, the harder it is to fix. Without question. I remember I started my career back at Compaq and we would do like sometimes nightly builds if we were lucky, but normally yeah. we do a weekly build. A weekly build means all the bugs I wrote on Monday through Thursday wouldn't get surfaced till Friday. <laughs> and yeah. then... The build breaks and it's Donovan's fault. I have no idea what day I wrote the bug that you're referring to that broke the build. It takes me now hours to go back in and comb through all the changes to figure out what happened. Whereas if I check in code at nine o'clock and the build breaks at nine oh four, I know exactly what I was working on. And it's usually one of those palm to head moments like, oh, my God, sorry, guys, let me quickly go back in and fix that versus, oh, my God, what was I working on four days ago? And let me see if I can go back in and figure this out. So, yeah, CI, it's so much quicker and easier to fix. Same thing with fixing a bug that escapes to production, right? Fixing a bug in dev and QA is so much easier and cheaper than that bug escaping all the way to production. And now you have your entire organization breathing down your neck. Why is this broken? And a lot of us go in in such a rush that we even make more mistakes than we do fixing one problem that we're trying to fix. So, yes, shifting that all left, getting all that feedback and information earlier allows us to fix things with a lot more confidence. Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, for me, doing the the big tests for for websites, this is where the cloud came into play. You know, even for an organization that wasn't comfortable with cloud, running a test lab in the cloud, because you can make a hundred of them and paralyze all those tests so that we could get our testing down to 10 minutes instead of several hours. Yeah. Right. And then when I have when I have a scenario like the one that you just described where the battery of unit test has gotten so large that yeah. it's it's really long time to run a test. In my CI build, I usually have two different definitions. One is a CI build, which will make sure it compiles and all my P1 unit tests pass, which are, these are all priority ones. These can right. never break. And then I would run a nightly build. Uh, I would actually run it at night. I wouldn't even run it at three o'clock during the day. I want my guys focused on continuously adding value to the product. But once we're all gone, I can now run a four or five hour build. I don't care how long the build takes. I can run every single unit test that we have. And then what they're going to do when they first get there in the morning is be able to pay down any technical debt that we incurred. Because again, if I run it at three and you leave at five, 
you're still rushing to get that stuff done so that you can go home on time. But if I go ahead and let you go home and relax and spend time with your family and I build it overnight, first thing you see in the morning is, oh, man, thank God I have all day to fix this stuff, right, that I might have broken yesterday. Yeah. For me, it's always about making sure you're not into, you haven't gone on to something else. Sure. You know, because as soon as that's what clears out your head fat the fastest. No, agreed. I know. And, and I get, what I like about our tool set as well is that you guys could do it any way that you like. Uh, it does it. It's, it's very flexible and powerful uh, and not very dogmatic or, or prescriptive on what you must do with the tool. It's mm-hmm. just an open framework that can. So if you wanted to run them at two o'clock and give them three hours before they go home, you could schedule your nightly build to run at three o'clock every day. Uh, or And you can have that running simultaneously with CI builds as well. So when you want to run that build is completely in your control. Absolutely. Uh, you and I did a video, I think it was for Dev Intersection. We were just talking about, uh, DevOps in general. And mm-hmm. I brought up the idea of knowing when to throw the party. Yep. Dave, have yeah. you run with this yet? Cause I know you were excited about it. Yes. And actually I talked to, I talked to, um, to Aaron a little bit about this too. And theirs is almost like a, like a every six months they celebrate, right? Mm-hmm. Cause so if you look at the way that we do planning at Microsoft, we do an 18 month vision. Then yep. we break calendar year into da- into two different seasons, the so spring and the fall. And then we run three-week sprints. And after every sprint, we basically cast another three-week vision. And they usually are every six months to like take the time to relax, celebrate what we've been able to achieve. And then we go ahead and, and gear up for the next six-month period. So uh, I thought it was really interesting. And I was kind of curious of what we're doing here at Microsoft. But you're right. If you don't stop and celebrate, it just feels like this never-ending death march of, of like, oh, my God, when does this ever end? And you need to take those times to pat yourselves on the back for doing something good. And we also have those, those that big release every January because even though we run three week sprints and we deploy after every sprint, there's one exception to that, which is the Christmas deployment. We never, ever, ever deploy over Christmas. I mean, the majority of us are on vacation. It wouldn't be fair to those who'd have to stay behind for that Christmas deployment. So in January, the first deployment of the year is actually two sprints worth of value. And it's right. always a great time to celebrate on everything that we've been able to get done there as well. But do you do this all on metrics too? Like you, that, that it, it's the customer acceptance level of a new feature, things like that. Like I, I just, I see the party throwing aspect as really when do we acknowledge that we've delivered value? Oh, that's true. And, and I, we'd also, I've seen some, some accelerations going out whenever we have a new feature join the family of Visual Studio Team Services, right? Because a feature doesn't necessarily show up the first day that we start coding on it. It could take several sprints for us to get a feature like package management out. When we RTM a, a feature, uh, there's usually a, a celebration of some sort for that as well. There's definitely an acknowledgement that our team has done something really great on getting these new features out. And Brian Harry is fantastic about, I mean, I don't know how this man emails as much as he does, but he was <laughs> to almost every bit of feedback that comes through the MVPs. And you'll see him also congratulating a lot of the teams on our sprint mails. So if you're not familiar with the way that we do it, across the 39 feature teams that we have inside of team services, they all send sprint mails, which are what we're planning to do for the next sprint. And then at the end, a three to five minute video showing what they were able to accomplish, plus uh, what the uh, textual ver- uh, version of that as well. And there, I've seen a lot of data boys and, and way to goes on those emails as well as we see right. new features mm-hmm. make it into the product. Yeah. And I just think, you know, it's the morale impact of those guys went out for a beer to celebrate and left us here to clean up their mess. Mm. And that's the thing I want to get away from. Yeah, for sure. I, I gave them a big thank you in a video I just did at the launch. Um, I did a video, I, I called it behind the demo where, I had done this nine minute demo on stage and I went so fast that I was thinking, I bet you people think that was smoke and mirrors. So I did another session of my own just saying, hey, I'm going to take you behind the scenes of that demo and kind of show you how I was able to do that and that it was all real. And I basically gave a shout out to the whole VSTS team saying, without them, there's no way I can get on stage and do the demos that you see me do. To build four pipelines in an hour, that's not Donovan. That is Donovan standing on the shoulders of the entire Visual Studio team services and Azure team to be able to do these amazing demos. So I think a lot of us who are out front need to make sure that we say thank you to all those who aren't on stage but are enabling us to be on stage. Yeah, there's a there's a big team back there building these tools. Yeah, that really does. Thousands. Yeah, that's 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 the thing is that the tool set's now getting so strong. Well, and I think this is what's compelling about your demo. You really don't have an excuse. You you do not have to invent a lot of things here. You just put together the bits that you like. Right. And and I always I, I people always say, okay, Donovan, my my leadership's not giving me permission to go off and do this. I'm like, what are you asking permission for? I I don't right. understand what you're asking permission for because they hired you to 
to add value, to do your job and, yeah. and doing your job is doing it the most efficient way that you can delivering as much value to our customers. And you're telling me that you don't have a continuous integration set up yet. I mean, if I was your boss, I, you wouldn't have to be, ask me permission. I'd be upset that you hadn't done it already. Mm-hmm. So those are things I'm expecting you to have done. I, I hired you to do the right thing. And if CI and CD is the right thing, then go do the right thing for our company. Stop asking for permission. And then I think the reason people were felt they needed to ask for permission is because they thought it was going to take them weeks or months to do. Right. And they were going to stop adding value for weeks or months and they had to go get permission to stop adding value. I'm like, well, hold on. Don't do it that way. Don't build it all at once if you don't feel comfortable. You can build a CI build in 15 minutes, right? With almost any tooling, not even just our own, but go download a CI tool of your choice and go set up CI over lunch. You don't have to ask permission to go do something on time that's yours anyway. Right. Especially if it's going to save time and effort down the road. Exactly. You're going you're gonna to get, you're going to get that time back over and over and over again. I, I remember once I got so upset. I think I was in England and, and you can find this video. I, I, I usually don't swear, but I was so upset with these people asking for permission. I'm like, damn that, man. It's your weekends with your family that you're giving up, right? And go take that time back with your family. Go set up a CI bill like I just did here. I mean, it took me less than an hour to do four of these guys. Come on, you got to be able to go back to your office and do one of these. And no one is going to fault you for an hour of capacity. Mm. That brings you just just many times over that in productivity and many times over that in quality and your ability to deploy multiple times faster than you were before because you invested an hour and, and you you went and asked permission for that. The amount of time it would take you to get the evidence and to convince people who don't even understand what CI is, that it's a good thing, you would have been done already. Yeah, absolutely. So that's right. Yeah, I, that's, I'm really passionate about stop asking for permission. Just go do the right thing. Yeah. Well, it's the same way that you use del- development tools, the same way that you have a phone and an email address. The fact that everybody has a chair. Exactly. Yeah. Go go use them to the best of your ability. They're just tools. Yeah. Tools yep. that make stuff work. Have we missed any piece of the pipeline we should probably dig into further? Um, I, One other thing that I want to make sure people do, and it, it's kind of funny because you don't always see it in the pipeline, but it, it impacts your pipeline. And that's mm-hmm. being able to monitor your application while it's running in production. Because right. I, I say that DevOps is about delivering value. And if it's about delivering value, how do you know you delivered value? You have right. to monitor the application while it's being used to determine if those new pages that we added to our website are even being found and being accessed. Because if they're not, you didn't deliver value. You just randomly copied a couple files to a server. Right. And and what we don't want, I, and I, I love the fact, and I'm, I'm about to badmouth the old marketing. So if you're in marketing or sales, please don't take offense to this. I come from Compaq where they would come running into my office, tell me to drop everything that I'm doing so they could close some cell that they swear is going to make us rich. And then I have to take their word for it that moving heaven and earth for them was the right thing because there was no metrics that could back up what they were saying. And I had to just take their word for it. But now as a developer, if that happens again, I can put telemetry in the new features that I'm adding for these people, push right. it out to production, and then actually call BS the next time they come running into my office. Like, really? Let me show you the metrics from the last. I had to stop everything that I was doing because this was the right thing to do. Notice that no one is using those pages that you just told me to go back and create. Yeah. And you need to think really long and hard before you go ask me to move heaven and earth to go do something that did add, absolutely did not move the needle at all. And right. that telemetry is really important, not only for if it's running or if you're throwing errors, but did we actually deliver value? Because maybe the marketing guy was right, maybe the sales guy was right, and 95% of the people who visit our website today are now accessing that information. And if right. that's mm. true, we need to find out why was that not the most important thing on our product backlog? Mm. We need to do more of this kind of stuff, and we can now go in our product backlog, look for things that we think are similar to that, and then do those things. And we can actually add the telemetry to them to verify that, yes, let's keep doing that. Because every time we do something in this area of our application, or we do it in this style of our application, look at this turnaround that we're getting. Look at this utilization that we're getting from our customers. That is actually delivering value. Donovan, do you see that people don't believe the the results like that come, that they're looking at, wow, you just did all this and you saved me all this time and money, and then still... Don't and then don't change their behavior. Um, what I have trouble with is people usually try to do that without the numbers. Once I have the numbers, you can't argue results. Right. Right. 
you can argue theory. You can argue my gut feel. You can argue if I don't have numbers. But when I can come to you and say, no, look, I mean, we have 4,000 people a day visit our website. 3,995 3, of them sit on this page for more than, I don't know, 10 seconds. At cl- and they click the button at the bottom. That meant they read it and they acknowledged it and they were getting value out of this page. Yeah. You can't argue that, right? You cannot argue the numbers when I bring you the numbers. So what the harder part is convincing them to put the telemetry in so that I can get them the numbers. That's yeah, the right. hard debate. Yeah. Once I get the numbers, there is no more debate. And what are you measuring? Oh, it all depends, right? So it depends on what you're trying to look for. If what we're trying to measure is throughput, then you're looking at things like um, uh, reaction time. We're talking about load time, response times for the server. If we're adding new features, what we want to see is are people finding those new features? If we've added right. a new wizard, we want to know where are they dropping out of the wizard? Because sometimes the wizard is too long. Sometimes it's too complicated uh, and people don't finish the wizard. We can now see what pages they got to, maybe what got them confused if they had to go back and try things over again. So there's so many much information. So it's not that you just throw telemetry out there. There has to be something that a question that you need an answer to that you then put the telemetry in place to be able to answer those questions for you. Did we deliver value? Uh, where are they dropping out of the funnel? Mm. Uh, do we need to add more X, Y, and Z? Should we have, and you can do AB testing with telemetry as well. For example, you have your current path of code and then maybe on your, on a search page, when you don't find something, you have another experience that shows you recommended uh, items that we didn't find what you're looking for, but hey, maybe you'll like this stuff, right? And we have this experiment going on and the telemetry can say that, wow, when we have the first path where no one finds anything, they don't search again. But when we don't find something and we recommend other things, they end up buying stuff from us, right? So you can run those type of experiments, but without the data, you don't know if the experiment is working or not. Right. Yeah. Wow. You you convinced me. I don't need any more convincing. <laughs> this is great stuff. But I think you also get to a place now where when you when everybody gets on board with metrics like that, you could now actually conduct experiments. How could we move this number? Exactly. You know, how would this number provide value? Yeah, and, and Sam has been preaching that to us. Sam Guckenheimer at Microsoft has been preaching to us hypo, I mean, with a hypothesis-based development, right? Mm-hmm. So for so long, we would put all this pressure on our product owner of our Agile and Scrum teams to be – like be able to see into the future. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that this was the most important thing. And it was like, omnipotent. Like, how is he supposed to know that? Right. These literally, let's be honest what these are. These are guesses. This is their best guess at what's most important based on their research and their information. And before we had metrics, we didn't know if their guesses were right or not until we Mm -hmm. got really negative feedback from our customers or maybe our stakeholders during our sprint review. And it still was kind of fuzzy because there was no numbers there. But now that you have the telemetry in place, you're absolutely right. We can take two different features. We can run a hypothesis. We can set a hypothesis, which are the two features. The experiment is actually implementing that and deploying it with telemetry. And then we can either say this is positive or this is negative based on actual numbers that we get out of it. And then invalidate a particular hypothesis and then take the one that was successful and run further with that one. Very good. And also, my, I got to think that the metrics you're looking at are business metrics. They are, you know, I, of course, I come from the e-commerce background. So it is uh, how much did they buy? How much did they spend? How many items did they buy? How long did it take them to do it? Uh, you know, how much value add was there? Like, what's the real revenue look like? Be, right. And when you, you know, good feature, you, I was a performance tuner. So it's like when we make this page 10% faster, we get a 2% bump in sales. And then there was sort of this threshold where once the page was under two seconds, you got very little benefit going any faster than that. But you could see the shape of those numbers and, gotcha. and just to optimize return. Perfect. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that the numbers that you track for an e-commerce site would be different than an online game. Yes. Right. So that's, again, yep. you have to, to kind of know, you have to know the business that you're in. And what data do we need to be able, as you said, move needles that are important to us, right? So maybe if you have a, a multiplayer game, it's the number of simultaneous users we can have on a particular cluster so that we can reduce how many clusters we have to go build for World of Warcraft or something like that. So those metrics are going to be drastically different than the metrics that you might run for e-commerce or maybe an online banking site or even like a stock trading site, which is all about how fast can I execute those transactions and those and those purchase orders and sell orders. So again, you're absolutely right. The numbers are imperative, but what numbers you track all depends on the industry that you're in. Right. I, I would think this is where you need to spend the most time is figuring out what numbers matter up and down the stack. And they tend to be business metrics of some kind. They don't tend to be very technical metrics. Not always. You're absolutely right. I, I, this reminds me of back when I used to do a lot of load and performance testing for companies and mm-hmm. I would fly out there. And the first thing I would ask them is, so, so why are we running load test? 
And they would say, well, my manager told me we needed to run load tests. Right. <laughs> like that's the wrong answer. I need to know yeah. what are we looking for? Are there bottlenecks? Do you have an SLA that we're trying to conform to? I need to know what metrics on every one of these servers I need to be reading. Otherwise, we're going to get so much data, we're still not going to be able to make sense of it. Yep. My, my usual way of figuring out what they actually needed when I got that call was to look at what happened to their site the weekend before. Mm. Interesting. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. You know, the real thing they wanted to know is the site's not going to tip over on Saturday. That's what yeah. they wanted to know. Sometimes, right? That that sometimes is the case. Some of them were basically saying we were promised an architecture that would sustain and they had it built by a third party. Right. And they just needed to go verify that this site would indeed sustain the simultaneous users that they were guaranteed in the contract that they signed with the third party. So I've mm-hmm. had that one too. But you're absolutely right. It's all about will it sustain the load? I mean, I wish yeah. some of the websites that we've the government's put out recently had taken that time to, to go figure out if it could actually sustain the load or not. Uh, I can't imagine what you're talking about, Mr. I Brown. have no, no idea no, what no, you mean. No, just, no idea just, at all. Hypothetically, hypothetically speaking. Yeah, yeah hypothetic. okay. Very hypothetical. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Well, uh, wow. Jam-packed show. As usual. As usual. Perfect. Thank you. Oh, no. My, my pleasure, guys. I mean, I love talking about this stuff. And any time I can come back and share what we're doing at Microsoft or or, or what's coming down the pipe, just 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 holler at me. I'll always hop on the phone with you guys. You bet. You got it. It's a promise. All right, great. All right, listeners, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 